It's a question often left unanswered in many murder cases. What caused who appears to be a normal, good-looking guy to become so unhinged he'd take the life of another? In this case, Anders Odegaard is charged with beating to death his ex-wife Carissa in front of their children, five of them in all. If there was a history of physical abuse, it was apparently hidden within families and could come out at trial. A look at Minnesota and North Dakota court records shows Odegaard's only criminal history is a speeding ticket. In an earlier report looking at divorce proceedings, we told you he was saddled with considerable debt, some $204,000 worth of school loans and credit card debt. He graduated from UND's law school and began practicing in 2017. But there was much more going on behind the scenes during the past year. iNews has uh, learned he'd been working as the Mercer County, North Dakota State's attorney from June of 2021 until September of 2021 when the county commission fired him. Then he went on to work as the Stark County public defender in Dickinson. He was fired from that job in about three months. Then there was a brief stint with a Bismarck law firm. What was happening behind the scenes at those jobs isn't public record because it involves personnel records. More answers to all those questions will likely come out if this case makes it to trial without a plea bargain. Meanwhile, five children have been left without parents. Carissa Odegaard is dead, and Anders Odegaard is facing the possibility of 40 years in prison. I'm Neil Carlson reporting for inews.tv. Mother had a cut on her arm. 
Child stated his li little brother got away from his parents and had to wash him up because of, there was blood on him. Child stated that the uh, fight argument started outside in the backyard and moved into the house. He said that his dad was holding a spatula outside and maybe cut his mother with that. The child went into the house and saw his father tackling his mother and started choking her. That is when his mother said, uh, call 911. His mother was on her stomach and his father was on top of her choking her. There was blood all over and he stepped over his mom at that time. He said that he did tap on his mother's foot, but that she didn't respond to the touch. Again, that was from the criminal complaint. Anders Odegaard now facing a second-degree murder charge uh, held in the Marshall County Jail. I'm Neil Carlson reporting for inews.tv. case, jurors learn about the gunman's childhood and mental state in the Parkland School Shooter Penalty Phase trial. Last year, the gunman pleaded guilty to 17 counts of murder and 17 counts of attempted murder after the deadly shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Jurors will now decide whether the defendant receives life in prison or the death penalty. Defense attorneys finally presented an opening statement on Monday, weeks after the trial first began. They outlined the gunman's difficult upbringing and unstable mental state, calling multiple witnesses who supported that narrative. Even after she told you that she was pregnant, did you see her continuing to use absolutely alcohol? Yeah, absolutely. Drugs, alcohol, weed, cigarettes. Linda didn't see anything wrong. She, she didn't want to see anything wrong with him. But that's not unusual. No, it's not. <clears throat> and when you would try to have these conversations with her, was she receptive? No. He was talking about that something made him go bad. And he mentioned marijuana. And I knew right away, I said, that's not true. That's not true. He was never right. It wasn't marijuana that, that changed him. He was never right. Catherine, let me start with you. Defense counsel is trying very hard to save the defendant's life. How do you think this jury is actually responding to all of this evidence about his mother's drug use, especially when she was pregnant with him? I think now the jury's state of mind is shifting towards those very sad and tragic mitigating factors that the defense is rightfully putting in front of them. That we are not hearing anymore the horrific uh, shooting and the videos that we've been seeing before the the defense uh, before during the prosecution's case, and it's. It's a good tactic that the defense had their opening right after all of those horrific facts and evidence were presented. Now the jury has has the opportunity to shift their minds. And here, I think there will be a lot of sympathy for the defendant because of the drug use of his mother and other factors such as, as we saw, the testimony of that neighbor say that he just didn't look right even as he was growing up, so. Yeah, it's so interesting you should say that, Catherine, because I was actually thinking that it was a good idea to wait to do the defense opening. I think others thought it was not, but either way, we'll see what the jury decides at the end of the day. And Mike, you know, even if the jury ultimately does agree, 
that he should get the death penalty. There's going to be all kinds of lengthy appeals, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And this is going to be a very long process if he gets found where they believe the death penalty applies. Because usually death penalty cases have so much exhaustion of appeals, which they should to make sure if you're going to kill somebody, there's not a mistake being made. But in furtherance, too, let's not forget, this. a lot of this occurred in the judicial part during the pandemic, and the whole United States, regardless of states, have been backed up because of the pandemic and how things have caused delays. So this will be even more so interesting because the appeals courts absolutely have backups. Right, so even if he gets the death penalty, we might not see anything for years and years. Thank you both for excellent commentary, and thank you for joining us here on Law and Crime Daily. We'll see you next time as we all... what was happening and what the facts were were telling them because they will apply the facts and the law and see that the verdict will very likely be guilty because like what the prosecutor said he admitted to being manipulative and controlling in one of his uh, video and interviews and that is the theme of this case manipulative and controlling hubris will be his downfall here especially when he represented himself absolutely the prosecution mentioned 16 years he was being controlling and she finally was able to speak out at this trial so coming up on law and crime daily defense attorneys now in on the parkland school shooter's childhood plus a win for harvey weinstein a new york court agrees to hear his appeal as he tries to overturn his 2020 sex crimes conviction released a 38-page redacted affidavit Friday detailing evidence that led to the FBI search of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. The agent seized multiple boxes containing classified documents. Judge Bruce Reinhardt ordered the DOJ to actually redact portions of that affidavit to protect the integrity of the investigation. The DOJ also filed a memorandum of law outlining a timeline and explaining the risks of releasing the affidavit, including witness retaliation and disclosure of sources and methods. And moving up the East Coast to New York, disgraced Hollywood movie mogul Harvey Weinstein is granted the right to an appeal more than two years after his conviction of sexual crimes. Weinstein was found guilty of third-degree rape and first-degree criminal sexual act, but acquitted of three more serious charges back in February 2020, capping a landmark trial of the Me Too era. He was sentenced to 23 years in prison. The decision now opens the door for oral arguments before the New York State Court of Appeals next year. Weinstein and his attorneys argued that the film producer did not receive a fair trial and they aimed to reverse his conviction entirely. After hearing arguments, the court could either uphold the lower court's decision and keep Weinstein's conviction in place or vacate his conviction. That could lead to a modified conviction or a new trial. Catherine, 
If Weinstein is actually granted a new trial, do you think his accusers, including Miriam Haley and Jessica Mann, will testify again? I think that they will, especially Miss Haley and Miss Mann. Those are the two witnesses, two key witnesses against Harvey Weinstein. And as you can see there, uh, Miss Haley is represented by Gloria Allred. And Miss Allred already mentioned in her press conference before that if there was an appeal and there was a new trial, that Miss Haley will testify again. So I think there is a high likelihood that she will. Miss Mann, I think, will also testify again. She has been involved in a lot of reforms of the laws regarding the definition of consent uh, so that there are changes nationwide. So these two are very courageous women, and I think they will still face their, their um, abuser, Harvey Weinstein, if there is a new trial again. It's got to be hard, though, Catherine, saying on that stand again and actually going through all of that and being convincing. But I agree. I think they will get back up there. Mike, Harvey Weinstein's planning to argue that a juror who wrote a book about a predatory older man should have been excluded from the jury. Could that actually make a winnable ground for appeal? I think it makes a justifiable justifiable issue to discuss on appeal. However, whenever you're looking to overturn a juror or something of that nature, it's very difficult. And one of the really reasons it's so difficult is when you look at it, it has to be a unanimous verdict. So not only do you have to show that the juror hid something, but the, the thing that he hid was used to find the conviction. But it's difficult to show that if 11 other people found that he was guilty of the charges that he is accused of. Yeah, I agree with you 100%, Mike. That makes complete sense. Listen, when we come back, a closer look at the Parkland school shooter's childhood years. Hear from two witnesses who knew the defendant in his early years and how they described his upbringing. Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein as a New York judge grants an appeal marking the first step towards a possible new trial. And later, the Parkland school shooter penalty phase trial. This boy did not go bad. He was never right. A recap of the defense's case so far. Law and Crime Daily covering court cases from coast to coast. Welcome, everybody, to Long Crime Daily. I'm your host, Terry Austin. After just three hours of deliberations, a not guilty verdict was handed down in the Ohio trial of Matthew Moore following days of testimony over charges for the 2020 alleged staged suicide death of his wife, Emily Noble. 
over the last week and a half, prosecutors questioned dozens of witnesses in an attempt to prove Moore killed Noble in May 2020. But prosecutors said he staged her murder to look like a suicide. During the four months she was missing, several search parties looked for the 52-year-old, although her husband reportedly never helped. Her remains were found in September of that year in a wooded area near the couple's home. She was found kneeling beneath a tree with a USB cord attached to a branch and wrapped around her neck. The defense called just two witnesses to argue their theory that the evidence points to Noble killing herself. Jury deliberations began Thursday afternoon and lasted just three hours before the jury came to a decision. The verdict was read early Friday morning by the judge. Verdict on count one. We, the jury, being duly impaneled sworn, find the defendant, Matthew L. Moore, not guilty of murder as he stands charged in count one of the indictment. Verdict on count two. We, the jury, being duly impaneled sworn, find the defendant, Matthew L. Moore, not guilty of murder as he stands charged in count two of the indictment. Verdict on count three. We, the jury, being duly impaneled sworn, find the defendant, Matthew Moore, not guilty of felonious assault as he stands charged in count three of the indictment. Mr. Moore, I think from day one, everyone's wanted justice for your wife, Emily. Uh, and I've heard that phrase a lot, and I think everyone truly desires that. But I think the jury has also said uh, justice for Emily is not injustice for you. Thursday afternoon, both sides presented closing arguments. The prosecutor told jurors that the defense's case is not what actually happened. The person who has repeatedly triumphed over trauma in her life, the person who has sought treatment, the person who is, by the defendant's own words, is not depressed or had never said anything that would have caused him to call law enforcement to try to get his wife help that she was going to harm herself. The person who just went out to celebrate her birthday, who's celebrating a special time of year in her life, she wakes up randomly in the morning never touches her phone to respond to any other questions or comment or text that she'd received, makes herself a drink, makes the bed, and wanders off into the woods to hang herself. Really? Hmm. What part of that is a reasonable explanation of what happened? Emily Noble's death was not suicide. Moore's defense attorney highlighted key points of the defense argument during her closing, saying the state did not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Moore killed his wife. He takes them to the exact area and says this is where she foraged. And then even the state of Ohio in their closing argument just now had to concede that, do you know what he says? You might want to go in. That's a bad fact, right? And you know why he wouldn't want to go in? Is it because he doesn't want to find her? Actually, I agree with that. You know why he doesn't want to find her? Because 10 months earlier, his son was hanging from a tree in the woods. I wouldn't want to go in a wooded area either. This has all been made out to be so horrific. Emily went to nature to find her peace. And you'll see that in the counseling records. 
grabbed her ankles. You know why she grabbed her ankles? So that she wouldn't stop herself from killing herself. Joining us today is criminal defense attorney Mike Corbonix and trial attorney Catherine Lizardo. Catherine, let's start with you. The jury only took three hours to reach a not guilty verdict on all counts. Were you surprised? Not at all, Terry. Uh, Diane Menashe did a spectacular job with her closing statement there. And it's it was so enthralling. You cannot take your eyes off of her. She was so good at presenting the facts and had such command of the facts that she didn't even need notes. And you can see her there ball, uh, uh, moving her arms, really showing the jury how can you possibly do this uh, in terms of the USB cord, wrapping it around your neck? It's possible. And our experts showed that the tree hanging can actually support her weight. So the state really provided so many reasonable doubts, so many holes. And the fact of the matter that she said that in the woods, uh, they did not search that area. That's a big mistake by the investigators. And yes, the state actually uh, agreed with that and acknowledged that. But having all that four months before they found her, a lot could have happened to her body Absolutely. that could cause the fractures that we're talking about. Absolutely, no doubt. Now, Mike, let me ask you, the judge told Mr. Moore that justice for Emily, you heard him say this, does not mean injustice for you. Do you think the jury got it right? Or did Moore simply have great representation? I think um, probably both. But I thought that was a very powerful statement by a judge to say, because when he said that, he really affirmed, I think, his belief. Because, and his agreement with the jury, because he said that there would be an injustice if you were convicted. And that really stood behind the juries and said he believed their verdict. I agree. That was a great statement. Still ahead on Law and Crime Daily, New York's highest court agrees to hear an appeal by disgraced movie mogul Harvey Weinstein. But first, hear from both sides as closing arguments are presented in the attempted murder trial of Trevor Summers. Trevor Summers decides not to testify, but does present a closing argument on his own behalf. Officials say Summers and then-wife Elisa Matheson were in the midst of divorce proceedings when he hacked a murder-suicide plot. They say Summers held his wife captive in her home and in the back of her SUV, attempting twice to kill her before a witness facilitated an escape. On Friday, prosecutors presented their closing argument. Quoting Ms. Matheson, all I saw was an expression of evil and hatred. And at that time, I thought he's here to kill me. I'm going to die. And as she sees that look on his face, she notices he has something he is hiding behind his back. He then comes over to her as she is on the bed tied up and puts the pillow over her face. She starts struggling. So what does he do? He then gets on top of her, straddling her, a 
applying more pressure to that pillow to the point where she is thinking to herself, she knew where she was going. She was going to meet Jesus. Summers opted to represent himself, meaning he cross-examined his ex-wife and two of his children. When it came time for the defense closing, Summers himself presented the argument. Gentlemen, um, reasonable doubt, I believe, is everywhere. And I ask you uh, to please remember that and to please focus on that, uh, that element that has to be proven by the time that you make these decisions about my life, about uh, the situation uh, that uh, you've been presented, uh, about deciding whether or not to find the innocent or guilty. I ask you to please consider all of these factors and see that what I am trying to um, show you is that um, this was a very abnormal series of events, and it requires a lot more information for you to uh, draw a conclusion that would say that I absolutely am guilty of these crimes. All right, Mike, Trevor Summers did his own closing statement, but he clearly lacked knowledge of the law. For instance, he kept asking the jury to find him innocent when we all know the correct phrase is not guilty. Overall, how did he do? Not well. Not well. And it's very difficult in these kind of situations when you're representing yourself because it puts you right in the middle of things. And the jury isn't wondering where you got your information from. They're saying you're the accused, you have information, and you're basing your questions on that information. So it almost turns a cross-examination, if, if you are representing yourself pro se, as testimony. And his cross-examination with her really was not good testimony, especially when she refused to look at him. So I don't think it worked well or was a good strategy. I agree 100%, and he kept getting interrupted with objections because he kept saying things that weren't in evidence. Catherine, the prosecution emphasized that Trevor Summers admitted to several crimes, including tying up his ex-wife. How do you think this... Across religion and culture, butterflies are so significant to people. They represent change in people's lives. Uh, this is the anniversary of the March on Washington, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, the March on Washington as well in our second hour. And also, we have a new class starting up. Um, we have a new class starting up on uh, Thursday. Uh, September 1st, ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, where they didn't teach you in school. So we give you some information uh, dealing with, we give you some information dealing with that uh, as well. Okay. All right. And people are texting some questions to me as well. You may see me smiling a lot during the show. Uh, somebody special is texting me uh, her question. Okay. So we'll get to that as well. Is the student debt loan forgiveness approval through Congress? No, it's not through Congress. Very good question. You've been paying attention. Very good question. You get an A star today. No, it's not through Congress. It goes back. This is why I went through um, this explanation here. And then we're going, we're going to Raymond on the phone lines in just a second. Stand by, Raymond. This is important for people to understand this. 
it does not this is not something that has to pass through Congress. Now, if they want to, if, 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 if Senator Elizabeth Warren and Chuck Schumer want to forgive more student loan debt, that has to pass through Congress. This right here is based upon the HEROES Act of 2003, which is already law. It already passed Congress. Education Department officials on Wednesday released a five-page legal memorandum that argues the department plans to rely on the 2003 law known as the HEROES Act that gives it power, that gives it power to waive or modify the rules on federal student loans during a presidentially declared national emergency, including the current pandemic, which has been declared a national emergency. So this is the legal argument, okay? It doesn't have to pass through Congress because the HEROES Act is already law that passed through Congress in 2003. They also, the, the, the Biden administration, elections have consequences, they also rescinded a January 2021 memo prepared by the Trump administration that concluded the education department lacked the authority to cancel large amounts of student debt because they didn't want to do that, basically speaking. There was some student debt that was canceled. A lot of that had to do with uh, for-profit colleges under clueless Betsy DeVos, who should have never been uh, uh, Secretary of Education, okay? Now, the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel also released a 25-page memo that they, they released this, uh, I think it was August 24th, that explains in more detail why the administration believes it has the power to cancel large amounts of debt as a response to address the financial harms to borrowers stemming from the pandemic, okay? So check out this article here from uh, Politico.com. This is why I wanted to make sure we dealt with this article from Politico because I've read numerous articles dealing with this. I did a two-hour uh, video on Wednesday. And a lot of the articles that I read did not deal with the legal argument that the Biden administration is making, that they have the legal authority to do this. Biden okay sweeping student loan relief as midterms near, okay? All right, let's go to the phone lines. Let's go to Raymond, line one. Uh, hey, Raymond, thanks for holding. Sorry for a delay. Welcome to the African History Network show. Tell us where uh, you're from, Raymond. Yeah, just a really quick question. Everybody's, a lot of people upset about Biden giving us student loan uh, forgiveness. But in 1978, they had the bankruptcy student loan forgiveness um, stopped that forgiveness program in 1978. Nobody complained about where everybody took bankrupt and got rid of the student loans out there. So what happened then when they passed the line? Right. Now, a lot of people are upset like who? Because it's, it's, there's some Republicans yeah, upset. Republicans. Yeah, there's a lot of Republicans upset, but a lot of these Republicans, they they got uh, they, they got uh, paycheck protection loans uh, canceled by the federal government. Okay, all right, keep listening, Raymond. Yeah, keep listening, Raymond. I appreciate it. We about to we about to go to that. Okay, thanks for calling, Raymond. Thanks for holding. All right. Uh, okay. Okay. Thanks. Okay, Giovanni, we're going to go to clip two here in just a second from the readout with Joanne Reed. But I want to show people this right here. You know, at the top of the show, we talked about people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who uh, is complaining about ten to twenty thousand dollars of student loans being forgiven for uh, forty-three million people. Okay, ten to twenty thousand dollars. It's expected that it'll cost. Uh, 
half a million uh, is expected to cost. Uh, uh, five, I think it's uh, yeah between three hundred to nine hundred billion over the next ten years. The number that I'm hearing is five hundred billion over the next ten years to the federal government. Some of that's going to be offset also by um, increasing taxes on corporations that haven't been paying taxes, right? But let's look at this graphic here. Paycheck Protection Program Loan Forgiveness. There were, this is from the readout with Joanne Reed from her show. Um, 11.5 million paycheck protection loans were approved, okay, during, you know, through the COVID-19 packages for small businesses, medium-sized businesses, larger businesses, so they can maintain their employees, things like this. $793 billion was the amount of paycheck protection loans approved. There was $742 billion of those loans forgiven because if you kept all your employees, didn't lay off employees, the loans would convert to grants and you didn't have to pay them back. $742 billion has already been forgiven for paycheck protection loans. The average amount of a paycheck protection loan was $107,000. And you have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, others, other Republicans complain about this. Okay, let's go to this clip from uh, the readout with Joanne Reed from uh, MSNBC. She's speaking with Ayanna Presley. Also, uh, she had on um, the Republican to give you uh, uh, an idea how Republicans think. Republican uh, Carlos Corbello, who's against this. Pay close attention. Let's go to clip two, uh, uh, Giovanni. I almost called you Jalen. Let's go to clip two, Giovanni. Steps for checking off a major campaign promise to America's youngest voters who voted for him overwhelmingly in 2020, announcing that the administration will cancel up to $10,000 in federal student loan debt and up to $20,000 for those who went to college using Pell Grants, all for people earning less than $125,000 a year. The administration also extended the pause on student loan repayments until a million people federal student loans, and more than half, half of them are less than $20,000. Recent poll asked voters 18 to 34 what they thought about debt cancellation, and 71% said they support wide-scale loan cancellation. That includes 56% of Republicans and 66% of independents. Congressional Republicans who were more than happy to sign off on a $1.9 trillion tax cut for corporations were, they were not amused. And like most things these days, legal challenges are expected, but for a lot of the young Uh, joy about 
about the um, the benefit to young people. Uh, this is affecting uh, people from every every walk of life, uh, and the fact that uh, 23 million people will have their debt reduced in half, uh, 20 million people uh, will have their debt canceled outright. Uh, one in four black borrowers, um, their debt will be gone. So this is transformative. They will feel the impact of this, and this is sound policy in that it is an economic justice issue and a racial justice issue and a gender justice issue, and that two-thirds of this debt uh, is born, and it is good policy and good policy. We have to get to the counterpoint, because I want you to, I want you to hear some of the, what people are saying on the other side. Um, now, we know that this was a big policy of uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, Bernie Sanders, and it was why a lot of young people liked him, and it was something that President Biden adopted. Nina Turner was a big supporter of Bernie Sanders. She tweeted, more should be done. Why stop at 10000 Why stop at twenty? Can't we all see that? What do you say to people who say it's not enough? Joy, I have to just acknowledge where we started. When the issue of student debt cancellation was introduced into the national discourse, people really sought to marginalize the issue. And many thought that student debt cancellation was something that would be regressive in impact. It was a horrible and false narrative. It would only benefit white graduate students who went to uh, prestigious or affluent institutions. And of course, that is not true. Uh, this is about educators who have sleepless nights because they can't meet the monthly minimum and pay for childcare took on this debt because they want to educate our babies. This is about 76-year-olds in my district, Joy, on fixed incomes, uh, still paying school loans, fear that they're going to die, still paying on these loans. At this point, uh, they own more than they took out. 85% uh, of students have no, black students have no choice but to take out loans, five times more likely to default. I was one of those students. That is not abstract for me. I struggled to pay off my loans, and I have, and I want better for the next generation. When we know we have to address the root causes when it comes to affordability of higher education. We've got to make that investment in the public good that it is. We need to invest in tuition-free community college. We need to address invest in HBCUs, and we need to expand Pell Grants. Um, but this is impactful. This is a bold step in the right direction. It is transformative, and it will be. It will be done. And, and I have a very little time left, but there is the other argument too. I mean, Rick Scott, who was worth two hundred fifty-nine million dollars, and did tweet this from a yacht uh, off the coast of Italy. But also the Washington Post, who said the loan forgiveness decision they thought it was bad. Widely canceling student debt is regressive. It takes money from the broader tax base, mostly made up of workers who did not go to college to subsidize education debt for people with valuable degrees. What do you say to people who say that? Wow, they are really disconnected. Uh, from the lived experiences and hardships of everyday people. There's a reason why we were able to get organized labor behind this, from AFL-CIO to AFT to NEA, civil rights groups like the NAACP, uh, and many other uh, groups that have worked with us on this, because this this is a burdensome issue. This is no handout. Uh, our colleagues across the aisle don't know what a hand up looks like. That's why they didn't want a child tax credit. That's why they didn't want to give life-saving health care uh, to veterans. That's why they didn't want to give stimulus checks to people in the midst of a pandemic or make sure they remain safely housed. Uh, Democrats are connected to the pain that everyday people are experiencing, and we are doing something about it, which is why we passed the Inflation Reduction Act, and which is why um, today this uh, unprecedented step by President Biden our calls. This has been two years of blood, sweat, and tears, and you will not break my soul. And, and, and quoted Beyonce, too, while she's doing it. Uh, I appreciate that. All right, let's bring in uh, for some counterpoints.
Vamos. The audacity of hope. To find hope in the midst of despair is a sacred thing born of wings we cannot remember we once had not knowing we will have them again to wrench joy from the jaws of unthinking degradation is a triumph beyond compare to find solace in the swirling abyss of sorrow is as courageous an act as we might perform to seek beauty in a massive pile of scattered dreams is cradling a tender innocence that cannot die to find sanctuary within a crevice of noise is a display of unconscious heroism. To create within the rubble of destruction is elaborating upon the tenets of bravery. To have faith when the sky is crashing around you is to demonstrate the strengths of being more than merely human. To rise again from the grief that befell you is to succeed in gathering wisdom. To gather wisdom from such agony is a sacred thing born of wings. <laughs>